Uh, traditions can be quite a funny thing, and I'm sure you've all heard of some strange traditions that have been maintained, even when the whole reason behind the tradition has been lost. Uh, there was a story about a newlywed couple where the wife cooked a roast each week, but in preparing the roast, before she actually put it into the oven, she actually cut the end off the roast and then placed it in the, in the oven. Now, the husband was a little bit confused by this. He'd never seen anything like this before. So he asked the question. And the wife said, well, I'm not actually sure. That was just something that my mum always did. So next time they were around at her mum's place, uh, she said to her mum, hey, why is it that you cut the end off the roast before you place it into the oven. And she said, look, I have no idea. It was just something that my mum always did. I, I always just assumed that it had something to do with the juices or the way in which it was cooked. So the next time she was around at her grandmother's place, she said, hey, Grandma, how come when you cook a roast, you cut the end off the roast before you actually put it in to cook it? And she said, oh, that's really simple, darling. The pan was too small and it was never going to fit. <laughs> now, that one's a funny one. But I'm sure that you can all think of traditions that have become unhelpful, uh, traditions that are in place that can even lead to being, let's say, ungodly. You can find strong traditions in, in certain cultures, certain ethnic cultures, Greek or Spanish cultures, where they traditionally do things in a certain way. You can find it in families where they traditionally do something in a certain way. You can certainly find it in clubs and organisations where they have very firm traditions that must be adhered to, but you also find it in churches. They seem to be very prone to adopting or insisting on certain traditions. And the tradition is maintained even when the whole reason for having the tradition in the first place has been lost. Or worse still, the tradition is maintained and it's having exactly the opposite effect to what it was supposed to do. One clear example of this is clerical robes. Um, back at, around the time of the Reformation, the Catholic priests had numerous robes that they would wear on the certain occasions, and there were certain superstitions and things that were attached to these robes as well, that they had to be worn in a particular way, that you had to do certain things or pray certain prayers before placing on each one of these clerical vestments. Now, when the Reformation actually took place in England, the, the church virtually went from being Catholic to being Church of England overnight. Uh, there were Catholic traditions and practices that were continuing to happen in the church. So they came up with a rule for the new ministers of the Anglican Church or the Church of England that they were no longer to wear these vestments. All that superstitious stuff was now out the door. They were to only wear a black cassock or a white surplice. They were the two items of clothing because they were kind of common street clothing for ordinary people. So it was to make sure that when the minister is standing up the front, he doesn't look any different to everybody sitting in the audience, in the, in the church at the time. It was to, to remove the superstition and to remove the priestly role that the minister had. Now, what started out as a, a great idea, uh, quite a few hundred years later, the tradition is still maintained, but it's having the very opposite effect. It now makes the minister stand out. He looks completely different to everyone else, and again, he seems to have assumed that priestly role by wearing those garments. Well, when we come to Mark chapter 7, we see a situation where tradition is also an unhelpful thing. 
but we also see that Israel's attitudes towards these traditions is symptomatic of a far deeper problem. Now, it may be a bit of an understatement, but if you've read through the Gospels, you're probably aware that Jesus wasn't much of a fan of traditions. He seems to fly in the face of many of the strongly held traditions that the religious leaders had that day. Uh, he eats with sinners and outcasts. His disciples don't fast, as we'll see a little later on. And Jesus seems to have a very low view of these traditions and even some of the traditions that they'd attached to the Sabbath. He's perfectly happy to heal people on the Sabbath, as we've already seen in Mark's Gospel. Uh, he's very happy for his disciples to pick corn on the Sabbath, uh, much to the horror of the Pharisees and the religious leaders. So when we, see, when we open up to chapter 7, we see the religious leaders creating another fuss. Mark gives us a pretty detailed explanation of what's going on here. It's to do with ceremonially washing your hands before you eat. The tradition seems to have stemmed from what the Old Testament said, that priests were to wash their hands and their feet before they were to go to the temple. But now it's been extended to all kinds of people and it's before every meal. So it says in chapter, Mark chapter 7 verse 5, the religious leaders come to Jesus and they say, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands. Now, Jesus doesn't even attempt for a moment to justify his disciples in this. Look at what he quotes from the book of Isaiah. He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules Taught by men. You've let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. Did you notice a little twist there? The religious leaders have come to Jesus and talked about the tradition of the elders as though that was going to mean that it carried some authority. But in the quote from Isaiah, Jesus says, No, traditions of men is what you've got. Rules taught by men are what you're teaching. The Pharisees think that they're honouring God by holding on to these traditions, but the fact is their traditions have actually hardened them towards God, as Jesus goes on to say. Jesus says there's kind of a double mistake that they're making. They're making a mistake about the value of traditions, but they're also making a mistake about what it means to be clean. So mistake number one. Uh, valuing the traditions of men over what God really wants. Having a tradition where you cut the end off the roast, that's just a little bit silly, but having traditions that these people have established, well, they actually can lead to doing exactly the opposite of what God wants you to do. They'd set up a system by Jesus' day that was called korban. Korban simply means an offering to God. It's actually a Hebrew word from the pages of the Old Testament. But they'd structured it in a particularly legalistic way. It could be a gift that you could make of property or money to the temple or to the priesthood. Here's how it worked. A man could make a vow, basically write a will that said that on his death, his property and his money would be given to the temple or to the priests to be able to use as they saw fit. It's kind of like leaving all or part of your money in your will. 
And the person making a vow could get to enjoy all of that property and money while they were alive. It's just that when they come, when their life comes to an end, then it will be handed over to the temple. So if their parents were to say to them, hey, we're doing it pretty tough, the son could say, with complete impunity, could say, I'd love to help, but I've actually dedicated everything as a gift to God. Everything is now korban, all my property, all my finances, I've dedicated it to God, so I'm really not in a position to be able to help you anymore. It would effectively mean that he'd be relieved of his financial responsibility for looking after his parents. So this man-made rule could get you out of doing what God had clearly said you were supposed to do. I mean, it sounds crazy, doesn't it? To think that this man-made tradition is actually going to be able to nullify one of the Ten Commandments. But it's an example of how hard these hearts had become. But I don't want to be too quick to point the finger here because I'm not sure that too much has changed with us human beings. I think we all have the tendency to be like that. We can know what it is that we should do, but we can still think of ways of actually getting out of doing what we know we ought to do. We can know what it is that God's word says, but we can still wangle around and think of some creative ways of actually getting out of doing what God's word says. We can justify it in our own minds that we're doing the right thing. We do it as individuals and we do it as churches and we need to make sure that we keep examining our actions and our hearts to make sure that we are doing what God wants us to do. Now, the second mistake that these guys are making is that they're confused about what it is to be clean. They've got it completely wrong. In the religious culture of that day, cleanliness was seen pretty much as being an external sort of thing and could be dealt with externally through rituals and customs. Go through the right rituals, perform the right ceremony, and you will be clean. And Jesus stresses that cleanness... It's not about ritual washing. It's not about your outside. It's about what's happening in here. It's about your heart. And it goes far wider than washing your hands before you eat. Look at what Jesus says in verse 14, chapter 7, verse 14. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. Old Testament food laws were pretty clear about what was clean and unclean food. But ultimately, like everything in the Old Covenant, it was really just symbolic and pointing to the greater reality that would come when Jesus walked on this earth. And cleanness in the new covenant is not about what you eat. It's not about what you put into your body. Jesus ushers in this new kingdom and points to what the old covenant was only symbolising. What we're on about now is not being symbolically clean, but being clean inside, having clean hearts. He goes on to explain it in verse 18. Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach, and then out of his body. Now, this is a pretty radical thing that Jesus is saying here. I don't want to dismiss that. This is 
pretty big. I mean, for more than a thousand years, Jewish people have had these strict food laws in place, what they could and couldn't eat. And in one short statement, Mark tells us that Jesus is declaring all food clean. You've got it there in verse number 19. For it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and then out of his body, and then in the brackets there. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean except asparagus and eggplant. Yours might not actually say that, but that's a a variant reading that we have. um, And I feel fairly confident that that would be the right way to approach that message. But do you see what a radical thing it is that Jesus is saying? He's saying bacon and prawns are back on the menu for all of these Jewish people who for a thousand years have never touched that because we were told that it was unclean. Jesus has declared all food clean, but it's not about the food. That's an incidental detail in this story. Look at what Jesus goes on to say in verse 20 when he's talking with his disciples. He went on, What comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of man's hearts, come evil, evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, evil, uh, envy, slander, arrogance and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a person unclean. He's not talking about changed eating habits, is he? He's actually talking about changed hearts, about honouring God, not just with your lips, but honouring with your heart. Now, the incident that follows on directly from this may seem a little bit disconnected uh, when we're talking about unclean foods and traditions of men, but in Mark's mind, it's pretty closely joined together. Now, Jesus wants to clarify about clean and unclean people. So he's travelled north and he's actually crossed over the border. He's now outside of Israel. He's in what we would call today Lebanon. So he's moved into Gentile territory and he's gone there, it seems, to escape the crowds, but the crowds seem to follow him wherever he goes. And a woman, a Gentile woman, a Greek woman from Syrophoenicia or Syrian Phoenicia, comes to Jesus and pleads on behalf of her daughter who is possessed by a demon. And look at the response that Jesus makes, verse 27. First let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Now, I want to say I think there's a great irony in what Jesus is saying here. This isn't what he thinks, but it certainly sounds like something that the Pharisees or the religious leaders of the day would have said. Jesus is merely kind of parroting or repeating the type of thinking that those religious leaders would have had. See, unlike the Pharisees and the scribes, Jesus has no issue dealing with Gentiles or Samaritans. He sits and talks to the Samaritan woman at the well. He heals the the daughter of a Canaanite woman. He healed the servant of a Roman centurion. Jesus has no problems dealing with people from outside of Israel. He has no problem caring for those who the Pharisees would consider to be unclean, who in fact the Pharisees would call dogs. So when Jesus echoes the Pharisees' thinking, I don't think he's saying for a moment that he considers this woman to be a dog. And look at what she replies. Yes, Lord, she replied, 
But even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And Jesus tells her to go home because her daughter has been healed. Here's a woman who understands who Jesus is, has come to him with her greatest need, and Jesus has been willing to meet that need. One more healing. One final incident that kind of ties the whole thing together. Jesus heals a man who is both deaf and dumb. This chapter begins with a quote from the book of Isaiah. uh, And it kind of closes with an allusion to the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah really sums up the agenda that Jesus has. Isaiah is quoted a number of times and alluded to dozens more times in each of the Gospels. So we have a deaf and dumb man being healed And when we see that, I'm pretty sure that we're supposed to be thinking of Isaiah uh, where, where he says this. Or does he? No, he doesn't. Anyway, this is what it says in Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5 and 6. Talking about the new kingdom being ushered in, it says, Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And then the lame will leap like a deer and the mute tongue Shout for joy. See, Jesus is doing what Isaiah promised he would. One of the most important promises that Isaiah makes is that in this new kingdom, that it won't just be for the nation of Israel. It'll be for all the nations. God will be drawing people from all nations to come to him. And that's the agenda that Jesus has in this kingdom. That's why he's straying over the border there of national Israel into Lebanon. That's why he's dealing with Greek women. This is a kingdom where even those who are born in Syrian Phoenicia or Australia are welcome. This is a kingdom where Roman centurions and Canaanites and Samaritans can all be a part. Right at the very beginning of the book of Isaiah, in chapter 2, verse 2, it says this. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and all nations will stream to it. All the way through the book of Isaiah, that's God's agenda. And that's the agenda that Jesus has. That's what we see in these gospels. That God's house will be a house of prayer for all nations. That God will be drawing all nations to himself. That people from all nations will be God's people. That salvation will no longer just be for Israel, but for all nations. But sadly, the religious leaders didn't seem to see it that way and they thought of the Gentiles as no better than dogs. So here's the take-home message. Two parts. First one, the glaringly obvious part. Watch out for traditions. Keep examining your traditions and make sure that they are helpful, godly ones. Not Traditions intrinsically aren't right or wrong or good or bad, but they can become dangerous. They have the ability to make us lose sight of what we should be doing and continuing to do things that may ultimately even become unhelpful. It seems to me that every church is susceptible to them. You can see it in the Presbyterian church, traditions that we hang on to, traditions that at the very least can often seem to be at odds with what the Bible says. But I think it can happen to us as individuals as well. 
We can have our own personal traditions or customs or habits. And we need to step back and think about how it is that God wants us to live. Changed hearts. It's not what goes into the body, it's what comes out. It's what our heart is shaped like that matters most to God. And we need to measure the value of our traditions in light of that. But the second half of the take-home message is this. The kingdom that Jesus brings in is a kingdom for everyone. Every single person is welcome to become a part of that kingdom through faith in Jesus. There is not a single person who you will meet who is not welcome to join that kingdom. I sometimes think that we can end up being a little bit like the Pharisees. We can think that there are some people who couldn't possibly become followers of Jesus. We tend to think that there are some people who really don't deserve to be a part of the kingdom. Well, can I say, when you start thinking like that, you're starting to sound a bit like the Pharisees calling people dogs, aren't you? The kingdom that Jesus has established is one where people from every nation, from every socioeconomic group, are welcome to be a part of that kingdom. Because Jesus is the one who makes us clean who makes us fit for that kingdom. There's not a single person that you will meet today who's not welcome to join that kingdom. Not just here, but as you walk up Darling Street, as you head into the city later on, as you're you're talking to your neighbours, there's not one single person who you will come across who is unfit for entry into the kingdom. Jesus' message is that the kingdom has come And the message that we still have today for our world is that the kingdom has come and that anyone who is willing to put their faith in Jesus is welcome to be a part of that kingdom. 